0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles podcast. My name is Adam Beck, your host of the Smart Cities Chronicles, and I'm also Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia and New Zealand region. Welcome to uh, another episode of what we're calling the PropTech Project. Uh, For those that would have um, listened to our introductory podcast and maybe some of the other episodes in the PropTech Project, you would know that we are... Uh, sort of unpacking this idea of prop tech, uh, what it is, what it isn't, what it might be, what it could be, um, and also sort of having a look at the idea of prop tech for purpose. Um, we've had some amazing guests in our previous episodes, uh, and uh, for this episode, um, absolutely delighted to have uh, a, a new friend on the line, Ari. Garty from uh, 160 Ventures. Ari, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Adam. Thank you for having me. So Ari, we, um, we've known each other for about two and a half weeks. We met each other down in, uh, in San Diego at that Smart Cities Week down there. Um, you're part of a bit of a, uh, a prop tech session that we were running at the conference. Um, Let's start by getting you to introduce yourself to our, our listeners. Who are you and, and what is your day job? Sure. So uh, currently my day
1: job is founder of One Six Zero, which is a sustainable modular company focused on affordable housing, which has become quite a crisis here in the U.S. and especially in California, and um, coming off of a bit at uh, Director director of Acquisitions for an affordable housing company. Um, However, I've been in PropTech since 2000 when I joined Realtor.com and ran their program management team over there for about seven years in the uh, early 2000s. And uh, after that, I did everything from brokerage, syndication, fix and flips in the real estate space, um, helped the company out for a couple of years, a property management company, and implementing all their property management software, and have served as advisor to Sustainable Building Council here in California, as well as advisor to a number of uh, prop tech companies, a most recent one called Valkyrie, uh, which deals with valuation in the commercial real estate space and, and helping appraisers out through technology.
0: So Ari, um, when you use the sort of word or you refer to the the the, the 2000s um, in in sort of the tech world, that's that's quite a long time ago. So um, you've you've obviously sort of been part of and um, are amongst sort of you know the, the the prop tech sort of stalwarts. Can I can I start by asking you a question? Can you sort of cast your mind back? and share with us um, you know those those sort of early days of prop tech um, when you were, when you were engaging with it um, I I um, we interviewed Kylie Davis um, who's sort of from the, the the realty real estate sort of residential sector uh, on this podcast a couple of episodes ago um, when you use the word sort of realtycom I do get I sort of do get flashes of those real early days of um, you know websites and, and making uh, access to sort of property and, and perusing and buying you know making it all a lot easier using websites. Talk us through those early days uh, of prop tech when 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 you were sort of hanging around it and sort of how you found the journey to today.
1: Sure. So I actually started in tech in the mid-90s. So right out of college <laughs> in, in, in San Diego, way back in 1995, when I had to, uh, I actually took a class at UCSD and my professor was just starting to teach some HTML classes. So I picked that up and then I ended up co-founding a company called Powell Internet Consulting uh, in San Diego, Pint. And that was back when everything was manual HTML. And he was one of the pioneers that actually started creating the kind of three-tier environments where, you know, you're not just static HTML, but you get into the the details of databases and application servers and everything else. So I I took that journey through 97, moved back to LA and built the tech behind a lot of the startups. I don't know if you remember e-companies back in the day. They were one of the first uh, incubators here in LA um, in Silicon Beach and Santa Monica. So up to the crash in 2000 when the entire bubble kind of collapsed. I was I was in the internet space. And then back at the end of 2000, uh, timing was interesting, but they actually did quite well. Realtor.com had just gone public. And uh, I was recruited a few months right after their public offering to come in uh, and help with their uh, some key projects that they were doing for Ascendant at the time, which was uh, a major brand owning everything from Coldwell Banker, ERA, Century 21. And they had some major initiatives uh, at that time. This was back in end of 2000, beginning of 2001, that needed help um, in putting some serious prop tech. So for example, this is one of the first companies that, uh, that created a product called BrokerNet. And BrokerNet was really the first CRM for real estate brokers um, out there. Uh, we also built, there's a company called Tell Me. We created a, a voice application where people could literally drive by listings and see a code at the top and enter that into their, uh, into their browser and get all the information um, and also call in and get everything over, uh, over voice. So, you know, very innovative stuff, ble- bleeding edge at the time for sure. Uh, but one thing that I saw in, in, in entering this company and entering the space was just how sort of prehistoric uh, the realtors were at the time. Again, this was pretty early on. I guess by 2000, 2001, a, a large percentage of the population were online, uh, but typically the real estate agents and brokers uh, were definitely on the the older side and, and less technical in nature. So it was very it was a very interesting journey to see that that difference between the the high tech on one side and the very low tech uh, agents on the other. And, and, uh, and,
0: and, and, and Ari, sorry, sorry to sort of jump across you there it, 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 would it be fair to say that the the terminology at that point in the evolution of prop tech was kind of like real tech when, when did sort of this the terminology flip or or what was the terminology around those years
1: you, you know what i don't know if there was terminology um for prop tech at that time i think prop tech you know itself you, you might know better than i but it, it's a fairly recent Term and probably what would you say four or five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it was just uh, internet and and property <laughs> online. And 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 back then, I mean, here in the U.S., you know, Realtor.com really was the 800-pound gorilla because we were so fragmented. We had over 800 MLSs from different associations around the country, and, and Realtor.com was the first company to really take the data from those and, and put them all in one place. So, you know, back then. I guess it was just considered uh, real estate online. I mean, there really yeah. was no you know tech really I mean, that was as tech as it got, was uh, being able
0: to go onto a browser, not even a phone at that time, right? because we had uh, flip phones back in the, <laughs> the, the early uh, 2000s. That, that, that That's right. So so, was it, um, was, so what about the word "startup?" Like were you guys considered startups back then? Was that terminology used?
1: Uh, certainly, in the 90s, I would say you know because Realtor.com had gone public, um, they certainly were a startup, and they were a startup that went public and at that time quite successfully. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of them had failed, um, but I think where where they got, I would say the the traction was that they were the only. It was kind of a monopoly at the time because if you didn't have access to the data itself, you really couldn't couldn't show much. So, you know, at that time, I would say they were. Certainly miles and miles ahead. I mean, today we have Zillow and, and a lot of other large, you know, Zillow's consolidated, you know, a bunch of companies now. But th- this is pre Zillow, pre brokerages having, you know, kind of their own presence. You know, they, they tried to. Um, but brokerages, again, you know, if, if we go to the real estate space, whether we're talking about construction or we're talking about real estate agents, you know, it, it has been one of the last. I, I'd say industries to really get internetized and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and, and and apply technology to everything from property management to real estate listings to appraisals to CRMs, you know, relationship management. So, um, but I'd, I'd say it's certainly caught up with most of the rest of the industry at this point, at least in, in the real estate, um, i would say brokerage space uh, definitely construction has still been been lagging quite a quite a bit behind that
0: mm. so so we're in the what are we in now we're in the in the sort of early 2000s uh, tell us talk talk us through sort of those early days and and how you get to sort of now with with 160 what was the um what was sort of the transition there and the time period and 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 why did you end up where you are now with one six zero and sort of modular, modular construction?
1: You know, I mean, it was definitely a journey. I, w- I would say, you know, my dad was a real estate developer, so I had always grown up around real estate. I was always a techie. Um, so br- bringing those two together ever since I worked at realtor.com and I was there till, till 2007, um, I had always been in some form of either real estate or technology. However, After I saw the real need and I saw it grow, I decided that was the place that I wanted to stay. So um, I actually got into some syndication um, when I left realtor.com in 2007 and did that for a few years and then we had the 08 financial crisis. Um, And then in 2010, I decided to co-found my first startup. I was actually recruited by a guy who'd owned a structural engineering firm up in San Francisco who had been struggling with the communication between himself and the contractors and the architects and, and everybody else. I mean, these project teams for construction um, are very disparate. Everybody uses different tools. One might be on Dropbox. The other one might be on iCloud. So the the communication was totally broken and his goal was to fix that. So I I jumped in there to build a business plan and he asked me to join him as a co-founder. So we started Constructs back in 2010 and ended up uh, turning into a new brand called Canvas. But essentially what that was, was a platform that would allow all the different participants, um, all the way to the client. So client, contractor, architect, to all communicate under one platform. Because again, you know, in construction, which, you know, at that time was way prehistoric, I'd still say it's it's somewhat prehistoric, but they, you know, again, like the realtors, we're just far behind in their desire to to implement technology. And ironically, just one small part of what we built, people really grabbed onto, which was the ability on a mobile phone, which was location aware, to take photos on a project site and knew where you were, what project you were on, and would automatically share those photos and annotations with the rest of the project team. So it was a great way to communicate via images, um, I stayed there till till 2014. Um, and then we had different directions where we saw the company going. I ended up leaving there. I was uh, recruited by another guy who wanted to really disrupt the uh, realtor space, especially uh, brokerage, a company called Proffer. And Proffer was really about proffering or making non binding offers on real estate. Much like we typically do in commercial real estate. So in a commercial real estate transaction here in the US, we'll do a it's called a letter of intent, which is a non-binding letter saying, Hey, I want to buy your property. Well, we deal with that much differently in residential mm-hmm. real estate where you have the realtor that requires, you know, people to come in with a formal contract and you know, you're there filling out twenty pages of a of an offer before you even know if you have a meeting of the mind. So we try to take more of this informal, hey, would you take? Um, to the residential space, uh, and that was a really interesting journey, um, did that for about three years. A um, lot of resistance uh, from the realtor community um, in, in embracing that. And again, I think a lot of that comes from their unwillingness to change, although cer- certain pieces that they certainly liked the, the ones that did not disrupt them very much. And that's, I think the most interesting part of, of PropTech is not just the technology part, but it's really the the human and I would even say the the political part, you know, so even going back to my days at realtor.com, you know, we found that our biggest struggles were not technology, but is really getting people to change the way they thought and change the, the way they acted. Same thing when I, when I did, um, constructs canvas was, you know, I, I'd say our biggest impediment was getting people to want to change the way that they did things. Um, and I think, Across the board, if we look at PropTech, whether it's, you know, my, my advising with Valkyrie and looking at, you know, their clients and the appraisers and, and lenders, you know, everybody, I'd say the biggest enemy to PropTech really is the status quo. It's, it's the way people have been doing things for years and, and, and looking at, you know, if I change, is this going to improve what I'm doing by 10% or is it going to improve it by 2 to 3 to 10% or, or, or 10 times? So unless you're really showing them that this is going to be a 10x improvement on what you're doing, um, incremental improvements really have a hard time getting people over that line and move the needle.
0: I um I've had a number of you know other interviews on the on the prop tech project Ari and um just I I just want to sort of extrapolate this theme a little bit, but let me provide some context. Um, you know I've I've sort of Ask the question, and and I will ask it of you. I mean, you know, is is prop tech exclusively a startup agenda, or is it also um, one that can, you know, be, be embraced by, you know, existing, well established, you know, property or real estate development companies? Um, so. So that's sort of a question in there. I want to get back to, um, but just going back to this sort of change and change is hard and mindsets and politics. I mean, yeah, I mean, development, construction, real estate. It's it's a pretty it can be a pretty brutal industry and sector at times. Um, I have had sort of mentoring sessions and um, just general conversational support discussions with prop tech startups who um, believe in their mind and their vision, uh, and many of them, you know, I would agree, you know, have sort of a transformational solution for that industry, yet uh, have got zero experience in the property or construction or development industry. Um, So sort of two parts to my question there. One is, you know, is this exclusively a, a startup agenda? You know, and and regardless of that, you know. Second part to the question is, you know, do you think, do you think that prop tech solutions from founders and 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 organisations and startups who have been in property, you know, are, are they likely to have the most impact because they they know that industry well versus those that might be newcomers? So, can I sort of throw throw that pair of questions at you? to see where that goes? So firstly around sort of, is it a startup versus you know sort of growing up agenda um, or both? Or what, do, what are your views on that part?
1: If you don't mind, I'm actually gonna reverse those two questions, because mm-hmm. I think the first is, is important, uh, answering the second, which is mm-hmm. how, how much is the domain experience relevant? You know, mm-hmm. you know I have to say that the, the biggest pitfall that I've seen um, startups make is in envisioning a better way to do things. And typically, I've seen this more from the user side. So this would be somebody who's, let's say, for example, you know, gone through a traditional process with a realtor or ha- has run into problems and said, hey, there's got to be a better way to solve this. But they're not coming from an inside industry. They're really coming from a customer sp- perspective, which is a great perspective to come from, but it all depends on who, who your target is. And I think the biggest pitfall that I've seen um, startup founders make is that they under underestimate the importance of not only the domain experience, you know, the, you know, either being a realtor or being the appraiser or being the contractor. um, But also I'd say the, the inside view on that and and that kind of comes back to the political side of things is, you know, there's a lot of dynamics within each of these industries and without, really understanding what a what you're up against and b what's really going to motivate people to use your solution um i i I think that's the biggest Mm. impediment on the startup side and i think what's been happening is the established players don't want to take that initial risk so what they'll do is they'll sit back and watch you know the startup founders uh, come out with their solutions and see which ones really get traction so so rather than developing in-house um I think the trend has been more of an acquisition trend Mm, of, mm. of those more established players looking at what's working. Uh, And and I think the most successful prop tech companies I've seen have at least had, you know, either a major person of the company and and ideally a co-founder
0: that does have that domain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, so let's sort of park Terminology for a moment, you know, prop tech, you know, property technology, you know, using tech and data to help, you know, real estate property construction development be better. Uh, I, I want to sort of transition to that conversation. Um, the the prop tech project, one of our goals is to try and explore and I suppose ultimately try and really leverage and advocate. This idea of prop tech for purpose and the context there is, you know, we've, and when I say we, I mean, you know, myself as executive director of the Smart Cities Council, uh, at least here in, you know, the Australian New Zealand region, uh, a lot of great prop tech solutions. Um, I think a third of them are in search of a problem to solve. I think a third of them... Uh, absolutely nailing it fundamentally and transforming something that needs to be transformed. Um, and then another third, which is sort of undecided for me. Um, but but across that sort of 100%, um, if I go sort of in, 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 a, in a horizontal sort of, um, you know, divvying it up horizontally, uh, I'm seeing a number of them really tackle meaningful problems, and when I mean meaningful, you know, earth-changing, life-changing kind of problems, you know, economic, you know, social, deep social problems, you know, planetary problems like climate and things like that. So, this is probably now talking more to you in your in your current role as, as founder of 160 um, Modular Housing. Let, let's sort of go deep a little bit for a moment, on the idea of prop tech for purpose. When I so my first question, Ari. When I say prop tech for purpose, what's your sort of reaction to that? What's your interpretation? I mean, um, does does my introduction resonate with you? Am I am I sort of in in another world when I use this terminology of prop tech for purpose? Can you sort of, you know, help me here? Give give me some some reactions and thoughts from your side. Yeah,
1: so there's two things that you said. So, so one, when I hear for purpose, you know, you had mentioned, you know, problems or, or, or solutions, you know, looking for the problem, and I think, I, I think in that way, um, absolutely, you know, these these startups need to be looking at, you know, am I solving a real problem? So the purpose in terms of solving a real problem, um, I would say, is that first level. I'm a lot more interested in the second level. Which is, you know, is, is what I'm doing, is, is our effort, our team effort, and all the resources that are going into that, solving a meaningful problem? Um, and, I, and that's the part that I really connect to. I mean, number one, yeah, it's got to be there. You got to be solving a real problem. But in terms of a meaningful problem, that really is what motivated me to get involved with 160. I had run acquisitions for an affordable housing company, and I really got exposed to just how cold. Um, that industry is and how money motivated. I mean, yes, people in it are definitely, um, you know, motivated by helping people. um, But a lot of the investors in the space and the developers and a lot of the um, syndicators are, are really looking at the bottom line, a lot of the tax incentives. So going through that and having gone through the tech side of things, you know, what I really arrived at, and and I'm seeing it here in Los Angeles, especially as our homeless problem has just gotten completely out of control. And what I saw was, you know what, there really is an opportunity to to transform things. And there's been some companies out there in the modular space that that have been innovative. And I think just in general, um, these transformative companies, even if you go to the companies like the Ubers and the Airbnbs, I think people are now pretty desensitized to innovation and and transformation. And I think, you know, timing wise, I really felt like, you know what, I think society now is really feeling the pain in affordability. I mean, homelessness, for example, a lot of people are talking about solving the homeless problem, especially here in LA and up in the Bay Area, it's gotten really bad. And even up the coast, Portland and Seattle, which all comes back to affordability. So everybody talks about the homeless problem. And I would actually argue, it's not a homeless problem, Uh, Mm. the homeless, the homelessness is really the symptom Mm. and and the problem itself is affordability. Um, at least for a lot of them, I mean, mean, you're always going to have some homeless that, you know, there's psychological issues, there's post-traumatic syndrome, there's, you know, former incarcerated that are coming out that can't get jobs. But if you just look at a very large percentage of the population that is homeless, it really comes back to affordability. So I had invested in a company um, that was building modular housing a couple of years ago and, and went through this journey um, on bidding on a project for the city of L.A. for homeless housing. And it really woke me up to the reality of, you know, this real problem that needed real solutions and needed people that really had the experience and understood it. And, and, and I looked back at what I've done. I said, you know, what? I could really contribute here. Um, I got a couple of advisors on board, um, one of which, uh, Tina, is very involved as a board member and quite a few, you know, Bell Shelter and Midnight Mission, and she had really opened my eyes. I went to a bunch of events and saw just how deep the problem is and how, how many people really wanted to help, but there being a lack of, of ways to help. And where I landed was, I'd like to provide a platform that really allows people to, to get involved and to help, but we have to look at the root cause of affordability. And, and quite frankly, you know, here in Los Angeles, it costs $450,000 to build one affordable unit. That's without land, and it's as much as $550,000 up in the Bay Area. And when you add anywhere from $25,000 to $200,000 a unit in land, you know, there's no way to economically create an affordable unit that could be rented affordably. So, so the company that I had worked at previously, Apartment Corp, what they were doing was buying in tertiary markets, you know, secondary markets, C properties um, at way, way below replacement value. And, and what I found was that was the only financial model that actually worked. So I challenged myself, I said, well, wait a minute, if, if, if these could be bought for $50,000 a unit in tertiary markets in order to have affordable housing that was renting in those markets for like eight hundred dollars Why can't we have a model in major urban areas like LA, San Francisco that could actually make sense. But what that meant was really relooking at the way that things are built. Mm. And ironically, it costs more to build an affordable unit in like Los Angeles or San Francisco than it does a market rate or a luxury unit. Because there's so much government, as soon as you take a dollar of government money, now all of a sudden you're under all these government requirements that bump up the cost. So ironically, in trying to create affordable housing, we're actually making it less affordable and even the government incentives, tax incentives, um, don't make up for the difference. So that's, you know, the fundamental issue of why are people homeless? It's because we don't have affordable housing, or at least a large part, because we don't have affordable housing. But then you have to ask a few more why's. Well, why why don't we have enough affordable housing? Well, we don't have enough affordable housing because if it's not affordable to build, it's not affordable to rent. And you have to come back to the economic model. What's gonna incentivize developers to develop and investors to invest? So it has to make sense from a fundamental way. And what I landed on was the only way to do that is to really rethink the process of construction and the process of bringing units to market. Mm. And what I challenged myself with was, you know, how, how could we as a team figure out a way to half the cost of housing? So for example, in LA, it costs anywhere from three, $400 a square foot all in, excluding the land to build. So I said, well, is, is there any way that we could do this for 150 a foot? And that was really the impetus of saying, look, if we can actually make this financially work, then, we can get everybody on board because it's going to make financial sense. And, you know, taking out government subsidies and everything else, while while they'll always be there and those are a bonus, I think that affordable housing needs to work um, from from an entrepreneur and investor standpoint
0: more than anything else. And that's really been my my focus. So, uh, I mean, you can't leave me hanging. (laughs) I mean, how's it going? How's it going? I mean, what is... What is sort of the status of one six zero? What what's sort of uh, some attributes of your solution? What's the what's the role of of sort of technology, technology and data in helping you with the solution? Absolutely.
1: So you know, I've spent the last two years really looking at the different solutions out there, and there are a lot of modular solutions out there. Unfortunately, most of them are still, you know, maybe ten to twenty percent less than market. But didn't really move the needle the way I was looking at, which was how do we bring down the cost by half? Yeah. Um, And then looking at different technologies and what different people are experimenting on, um, I actually came came to the solution um, through through some third parties that have uh, different ones that have been developing different ways of doing things, and and landed on a few that put together um, would actually create the solution. Now that, (laughs) unfortunately. Uh, requires a lot of capital. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a factory-based solutions. You know, I looked at going abroad. Um, I looked at solutions in Korea and China and Vietnam. And, you know, while they were a lot less expensive, you know, you now have issues with tariffs and steel and, and bringing things in. But also, I really wanted to do something that would help the local community because while, while bringing in from abroad helps solve the price problem, it doesn't help solve the, the community problem. Mm. Um, and what I came across was there's actually a way to look at what do we have, what's sitting here in the United States right now and what resources do we have and, you know, recycling, you know, we have all these, you know, used really old rusted up steel shipping containers that, you know, rather than going out there and building container Houses, for for example, which I think are fantastic. I've been a big fan of container-based reuse for a long time. But what I realized was that it's very constraining in terms of design. Mm. So how do we take how do we take the best of all areas? So from a from a recycling, repurposing, reuse perspective, how do we recycle the steel from these old shipping containers so that we can actually build a superior building? And what I said before, we want to bring the cost down by half. It's not bring the cost down at the cost of something else. It was, how do we create a superior building at half the cost? And quite frankly, being here in California and dealing with things like earthquakes and fires and, and termites, you know, wood to me was not the solution, but steel, steel, you can go high, steel is strong, you know, you can engineer steel to be earthquake resistant. Um, So I was able to license um, a recycling solution and also license a concrete solution that enabled us to build a superior, stronger, fireproof, termite-proof solution, um, at, and we arrived at half the cost. And um, in terms of timing on that, you know, we are looking right now, we, we identified a, a factory location here in Los Angeles and are in the process of getting entitlements. It's going to take a couple years to bring that factory online, and I, I looked at incremental ways of doing it, uh, but unfortunately, again, to move that needle. Uh, really requires, uh, some major transformation.
0: Mm. It's, it's certainly not a short play, but rather a long game. Um, uh, but it sounds like uh, from the way that you're describing that the journey with one six zero, it's certainly one that, um, is absolutely sort of a passion of yours. And I would, I would, I would hesitate. I would imagine that, uh, you know money is certainly not a motivator, but but the outcome is so um i I unfortunately don't get to sort of um on these podcast episodes with the prop tech project. I hear so many great solutions that are sort of really starting to mobilize and i I, I don't get to sort of sort of you know co- close them off immediately it, it, they're, they're sort of stories that we're going to have to come back to in in some time. Um I suppose just a f- couple of final questions, Ari. Um, my, my my first one um, before I sort of get you to reflect on sort of the year ahead, um, relates back to let's sort of bring this back to prop tech for a moment. Um, I mean my my point blank question to you is, um, I mean it, it is one six zero by definition? you know, a a prop tech startup in your mind? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, data, it's absolutely a a, a prop tech startup. Um, Data
1: is a big piece um, of what we're doing. In fact, you know, a lot of the incentives that we have right now are opportunity zones. And uh, if, if not treated right and with the right data, um, those could turn into gentrification. Mm. So being able to track if we're actually accomplishing the mission um, Mm. is a huge part of it. Um, The other part of it is we're, we're doing a give back as well. So I've really taken a, you know, taken a cue from uh, Tom's shoes. uh, And one of the things that we're gonna be doing is a give back of of one unit of of homeless housing for every unit of uh, apartment housing, for example, um, that we're creating. Uh, But being able to actually track that, create the impact, um, blockchain also is gonna play a big role in what we're doing in terms of technology by being able to track all the materials uh, that go into our buildings, how they perform. Um, IoT is going to take a big role. Um, we actually have sensors built uh, within our entire buildings to be able to proactively see when, you know, when we have water leaks, gas leaks. Um, you know, how well is our um, lead buildings actually performing? You know, temperature, humidity, et cetera. So, technology. Being a tech guy, tech is playing a, a huge role. Uh, in terms of creating the transparency, the accountability, um, and you know, quite frankly, even the affordability and being able to track the, the impact. Because you know where we're going for money on this uh, is really going to be impact investors. We're, we're registering the company as a registered uh, for benefit or B Corp. Um, and part of our charter is really giving back to the communities and being able
0: to to track that um, and report on that is going to be key to our success, I believe. So Ari, leads me to my final question. Um, 2019 and the year ahead, what are you most excited about? You
1: know, what, I, what I'm most excited about is really uh, building a coalition of, of people and, and companies that really believe in, in what we believe at 160. And, and building that forward momentum uh, of those that not only share the goal, but also believe that solving this, this big, big problem of affordability um, is, is not only worthwhile, uh, but something they're willing to put their, their resources, uh, both financial, uh, but I think more importantly, time and energy into.
0: Well, so for the me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that, Ari um for our listeners we've had uh, Ari Garty from 160 founder of 160 um on the call for this interview Ari that's um that's certainly a uh, a wicked problem that many you know many have been sort of pursuing for quite some time you know housing affordability um, the story you've been sharing with us not only you know most recently with with 160 but also your your whole sort of um uh, history and journey around, you know, r- real tech and, and and prop tech and things like that has been um, a, a real value to uh, to our prop tech project series. So um, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us for this interview.
1: Uh, thank you, Adam. I, I appreciate being here, and I absolutely agree that people need to start looking at these meaningful problems and and creative ways of solving them.
0: Totally, totally agreed. Uh, And for our listeners um, who aren't subscribing to the Smart Cities Chronicles, you can do so. Uh, We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, You can also jump onto our website uh, and listen in, uh, smartcitieschronicles.com. And we always uh, love a bit of feedback as well. You can email us at any time. The email address is chronicles at ANZ.com. Uh, That's been another episode of the PropTech project. More to come shortly, but for the time being, we hope you have a great week and keep well.